be blunt, I haven't been able to understand the hype surrounding vertical farming. So I went out and found a 30-year agricultural veteran that is now leading a vertical farming startup. I don't think we need to think about this as, is this going to replace Salinas Valley in, in Arizona in the winter? It's not. But is it going to be a way to provide a product that's valuable at the consumer level? Is it a way to take some of the risk out of the supply chain? Absolutely. John Purcell is the CEO of Unfold, which provides genetics and digital solutions to the vertical farming industry. He sees big opportunities in tight feedback loops to improve consumer experiences and supply chain resiliency. Let's talk about how do we actually develop the kind of genetics that will help you as a producer, but also build a data set that helps us all understand how do we develop the next generation of products together that really makes sense. But he's also level-headed about the hype surrounding vertical farming, its limitations, and the challenges that lie ahead. We gotta be honest with people that this isn't a panacea, nothing is, right? But let's really talk about the energy equation. Have a real conversation with people, Tim, and that's what I try to do when it comes to sustainability. Let's really measure it, let's talk about it, both good and bad. There's advantages to many different production systems, but we need honest appraisals and honest conversations about the sustainability equation. Getting past the hype of vertical farming with John Purcell on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hammerich, and every week I get the pleasure of sitting down with the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Today's episode is a topic that I really don't cover very often. I mean, I think it's an interesting part of the future of agriculture, no doubt, but the hype and the ridiculous amounts of venture capital that have poured into it have made me more than a little bit skeptical. I'm, of course, talking about vertical farming, and whether you are a skeptic or an enthusiast, I think you're really going to get a lot out of today's episode with John Purcell. First, though, I'd like to take a minute to thank our presenting sponsor for this quarter, which is Merck Animal Health Ventures. Merck Animal Health Ventures is a premier investor in animal ag tech. They invest in companies creating the next generation of animal identification and monitoring technology to advance animal health, as well as new business models to create value from animal data. Merck Animal Health Ventures partners with early-stage technology companies to successfully scale solutions for their customers, which include livestock producers, veterinarians, and pet owners. For more information, especially if you're an entrepreneur in this area of animal health, be sure to check out the Merck Animal Health Ventures website. Thanks so much to Merck Animal Health Ventures for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, so now to our featured conversation here with John Purcell, President and CEO of Unfold. A little bit of background here on John, because it may not fit the mold you have in your mind for who is working in vertical farming. John's worked in agriculture for over 30 years, including a long career at Monsanto, which became Bayer. For the dozen years or so before joining Unfold, he worked in their vegetable seed division. His earlier work led to innovations for crops such as corn, cotton, and wheat. John earned his PhD in molecular and cellular biology from the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and worked as a postdoctoral researcher at the USDA before going into industry. He's also the part owner of a family ranching operation in Montana. So John started working on genetics for vertical farming while he was still at Bayer. They ultimately decided that the vertical farming industry was so different that it not only needed its own products, but its own company focused on it. 
And it was at that time that Bayer and investment company Tomasic formed Unfold as its own independent startup focused exclusively on the vertical farming industry. John was tasked with building this company from scratch, and that's where we'll start today's conversation. John's explaining why it was necessary for Bayer to seed a new startup focused on this budding industry. Well, I think part of it is you know, when you're at a big company, I love my time at Bayer and Monsanto before that, you know, you're feeding the beasts of a lot of different sectors, you know, whether it be the open field greenhouse process, you have you know, large programs, large growers, et cetera. And I think for vertical, it's got a lot of new players. It's got mostly uh, tech and startup money. So it's a very uh, quickly shifting kind of portfolios. So I think the startup actually helps just because of the agility, that laser focus, because our customers certainly have that. I mean, they, they know what they're trying to do. And I think it helps them for us to have that same mindset that we're going to deliver for the vertical farming sector. And we're going to try to be as agile and as mobile as we can to make sure we're doing things in the kind of timeframes that they're used to. Right. Now, you strike me as somebody who is excited by a challenge. Like, okay, this seems like a a tall order and, and somebody who would be excited by that. But certainly you had to have, you know, some reservations or at least some thoughts of like, okay, well, hold on. Is this really the right move for me at this point in, in my career after having so much success in what we'll call the outdoor agriculture space? You know, walk us through what was on your mind at that point. Yeah. And I have, uh, I have gravitated toward uh, a bit more risk than maybe other people. Everyone has a different risk level that they're willing to tolerate. But in my career, I, I started off way back in the eighties with the, uh, the, the early biotechnology days of Monsanto. Uh, and this was well before we had any products. You know, in the end, it turned out to be on you know, literally uh, hundreds of millions, billions of acres globally. But at that point, it was sort of a, a, you know, a dream. Well, what is this really about? But it was really attractive to me to try to figure out how can we provide novel solutions, not just new products, but whole new ways of thinking about how do we provide value in the agriculture sector? So I kind of rode the biotech wave with Monsanto. I actually took a, a role heading up biotechnology in Europe for Monsanto. And you don't do that, Tim, unless you have a little bit of a risk, <laughs> risk equation. <here. laughs> you know, in the 90s, oh, even now, it's, it's, it's not an easy. But see, that title got me into a lot of great conversations in Europe, as you can imagine, head of biotechnology for Europe for Monsanto. Uh, but then I, you know, I did other roles. I went, when Monsanto went into the vegetable business, I thought, that's really cool. That's when I first went over at the vegetables because it's a whole new way to think about technology and innovation. So in my career, I've kind of tended toward technology. I love innovation. I love the solutions part of it, but but I really think about what are the new opportunities, what are the cool things to do. So for me, I've done a lot of things in 30 plus years, but I've never done a startup. So I literally went from heading an 800 plus person organization, heading R&D for bare vegetables, and then uh, being six hours later, the only employee of Unfold. So it was, it was a pretty wild ride. And it was like, what the heck did I do? As you can, as you can imagine, as you look around going, wait a minute, it's just me. But it's been wild. I mean, we were 20 months into this and uh, it's just been really, really cool to see how the teams come together, the progress we're making. But it's uh, it's not for the faint of heart. I mean, it's a bit of a roller coaster as any startup is. But uh, for me, I, I have tended toward some of these opportunities that other people may have shied away from in their careers. Yeah. Well, it is a new, a whole new way of thinking. Like you said, biotechnology at that point was kind of a whole new way of thinking. And then you've sort of, I'm sure, have to shift your thinking again, kind of start from scratch, because this isn't necessarily the same as developing the technology and, and genetics for outdoor crops. Can you talk about that, the sort of reset that you had to go through to look at this in the right way? Yeah, I think the, the the first one is is, and this is true with many, many parts of the produce sectors, the emphasis on 
not just being successful on the farm and on the agronomics, but you've got to put consumers first. And I think there's many, many producers in the produce industry who have to do that. But I think in vertical, it's even more acute because in many cases, they're not just growers or producers. They're also trying to establish consumer brands. You know, they're actually trying to brand it all the way out. And you do have some big producers in, in the other sector, in the open field of greenhouse that do that as well. But I think in, in vertical, it's just part of what they are. I mean, they really are trying to think about everything from when that seed goes into their operation all the way to when somebody's consuming it, you know, in their dining room, right? And so I think that laser focus on the consumer is really part of what's different. I do think the genetics you're looking for are obviously different, but I think just part of it is also the the rapid turnaround. You know, these are not, they're not trying to do big commodity lettuce production like Salinas Valley. You know, they're doing a lot of rapid cycle crops, 26, 28 days. They're doing a lot of medleys of specialty kinds of lettuces on the leafy side. It is a different play. It's an important play for the produce sector, but I, there are some inherent differences, at least as the, the sector exists now, as far as what they're trying to deliver in the marketplace. You talked about kind of becoming a, a company of one sort of overnight, and obviously you, you built an early team. But once you had that kind of early team and they, they show up for work and they say, okay, you know, what are we going to do? How do you decide where to start with a task as big as this one? Well, one of the things my my former boss has always told me, which I, I never forgot, was don't fall in love with the science. Don't fall in love with the technology. Fall in love with the solutions, right? And I've always tried to live by that. So the first thing we did and we continue to do is talk to customers, talk to the producers, You know, really figure out what are the challenges they're facing, figure out what can we bring to them that will help them either reduce their cost to improve their cost of goods position or provide differentiated product that allows them to get more value at the consumer level. And so you're, you're really trying to address both sides of that equation. How do you produce it more effectively and, and, and more efficiently and, and reduce your cogs? But also, how can you provide a differentiated product that's going to appeal at the consumer level, at the retail level? But it starts then with basics of talk to your customers. <laughs> Go out there. We've had conversations with vertical farms all around the world trying to understand what's the value proposition? How are they thinking about genetics? And you know what is it we can provide them both from the seed perspective as well as that digital solution perspective to allow them to be more successful. And I would think in this business, more so than where you were before in outdoor farming, you're on the hook. You know, the genetics are on the hook because they can dial in exactly what you tell them to do in terms of, you know, environment and management. If it doesn't work out, it's going to be hard for me not to blame the genetics, right? So how much room is there in production capability of you know, one of your standard vertical farming crops to improve the genetics for those growers? Well, I think that's basically the hypothesis we're testing right now and pushing the limits on that. And I think there's really a couple different ways to think about it. One is if you look at the existing crops, which is predominantly leafies, microgreens, et cetera, we're focusing on two of those, lettuce and spinach. I think there it really is for a big part of it, the cogs play. How can we help them improve their efficiencies? How can we accelerate the crops? So, you know, reducing time to harvest, is there ways we can think about enhancing that conversion of light to biomass? You know, it's all about versus your inputs, how much output do you get? And light and energy is a big piece of what their inputs are, right? So I think on that end, it, it's very similar to any, 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 any kind of presentation system, which is think about where are their biggest costs and then what can you do to address those costs through the genetics? So I think that, you know, for me, that's, that's job one. But the second piece of the equation is, where else can they go as far as portfolio? And I think this is a big thing that Vertical has to do, which is they got to broaden the crops. I mean, there's a reason why 
you know, glasshouse, greenhouse growers grow peppers, tomatoes, cucumbers. They're highly differentiable. There's there's products that that allow the consumer to think about the sensory experience. You know, there's a way for you to really, really address a market that's looking for a better consumer experience. And I think you can do it in leafies, but boy, when you get into the fruiting crops, you have a lot more opportunities. We've had a lot of, everybody's had the same experience and whether it be strawberries or tomatoes, you have some that are just amazing. And then others, two weeks later, it's like, wow, that doesn't taste like, and and the the growers do a great job. It's just when you have swings in environment, you have too much water or too much heat, it can change what that end product looks like. And so taking that out of the equation, once we're successful getting those kinds of crops, the same reason why tomatoes, you know, most of the premium product is grown in glasshouse, right? I mean, and those growers, that's the closest thing to vertical farming, really high tech, very clued in on how they grow that crop. They can't control the complete environment because it's the glasshouse, but they do a pretty darn good job and they have a very consistent quality, but they still suffer through parts of the season because you have variations in sun, you have variations in temperature that they try to control. And hopefully vertical can address, you know, any gaps that might be in that high tech glasshouse market that's already providing some great produce out there. Yeah, I think it speaks to what you shared earlier about there's a real opportunity here for an integrated feedback loop that we have not seen in agriculture before from genetics to consumer. It's not all going to be one company, right? It's going to have to be a partnership approach. But I think it's a really interesting opportunity to find, you know, what genetics lead to the best outcome for the consumer in in such an integrated way where we can learn rather quickly. I mean, imagine some of these crops, you're talking, you know, not too many weeks from seed to being eaten. Is that right? No, that's right. And many of these are actually harvested, at least in the leafy side. And they're talking 25, 26, 28 day cycles. And so because they're doing a lot of you know, uh, baby leaf, a lot of medleys, so they're not doing the long crop, they're not doing the whole head. That's the way they're you know, making the product for their customers. But that also means you have incredible opportunity from a phenotyping, you know, from an understanding of how these genetics are performing because you're turning those cycles so quickly. Now you still have to go through the crop cycle to get seed. And so that's defined by biology. But as far as generating data and understanding how that variety is performing under different conditions, Tim, you're getting data quick. And, and that's really cool about it, which will really gives us hope that we're going to be able to accelerate a lot of these cycles because we're going to be generating a whole lot of information on different varieties in a massive way. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the market today for, for vertical farming and kind of the path forward. You know, you talked about your conversations with these growers and the biggest thing is like, how do we get our cost of goods down, right? To where it sounds like probably so we can compete with you know, what's already on grocery store shelves and still make money. You know, how close is vertical farming to being able to, you know, make money on par with outdoor farming? And what's the path forward? It it seems like trying to, you know, cut costs, cut costs, cut costs is a little bit of a race to the bottom. So at some point, you probably need to add more value as well. No, that's exactly right. I think there's a couple ways to look at it. When you think about where, where they're focusing, they're getting price points now that are competitive with what I'd call premium product, you know, the organic kind of labels and all that. So that's at 30% roughly kind of margin you have or or differentiating price you have on there. They're getting to that point, which is good. That's not a bad place to be. I don't think we need to think about this as, is this going to replace Salinas Valley in in Arizona in the winter? It's not. But is it going to be a way to provide a product that's valuable at the consumer level? Is it a way to take some of the risk out of the supply chain? Absolutely. And so if you kind of take a step back and look at it at a higher level, I kind of look at three markets, Tim. The first is where it is focusing now, which are that opportunity to provide hyper-local, fresh produce for urban areas. And this is why you're seeing so many vertical farms 
West Coast, East Coast, U.S., Midwest, Midwestern and mid-sized cities are seeing these pop up. Certainly in Europe and Asia, the same thing. Cities, urban areas that are looking for the fresh experience, that's going to happen. The second big market I look at that's happening, which is kind of interesting, is the countries that are looking at this from a domestic food production. And these are countries like Singapore, across the Middle East. They have huge capital reserves. I mean, you think about the Middle East and, and Singapore, et cetera. These are countries that have capital. They also have pretty sophisticated electronics and higher tech industries. What don't they have? The ability to produce a huge amount of food domestically. So they see this as a huge opportunity. Another one that we're getting a lot of the conversations and there's a level of interest in investment is the UK. You're thinking UK, but think about Brexit, right? Where most of that produce is flowing from the Netherlands, it's flowing from Southern Spain. With the Brexit, there's differences in how that pricing happens, how the flow of goods is. So they see this again as a way to increase their domestic food production for products. And they have great brassica production there already, but for the broader spectrum of products that they want to grow. And then the third one, which I think is going to, is, hasn't really developed yet, but I think is going to develop and could be really huge, is let's think about this from the retailer perspective and their supply chains. You know, one of the most valuable things you can do for any retailer is de-risk that supply chain. If you're a food retailer, doesn't matter whether you're an e-retailer or a brick and mortar, although there is really they're all brick and mortar e-retail now. Too. I mean, everybody's doing e-commerce, right? So, But I think one of their biggest challenges is there are times a year where product isn't as good or the quality isn't there, et cetera. So there's a lot of conversations now is, do they get more directly involved rather than just using vertical farms as a supplier? You could think about scenarios where you had a vertical farm co-located with your fulfillment center, if you're an e-retailer, or with your distribution center, if you're a big retailer. There's some advantages to that. Like I say, you're not going to replace all your existing supply chain, but man, if you know your premium product, it's going to be the same 365 days a year. If you know your supply chain is driving across the parking lot. In China, there's an operation where it's actually connected to the distribution center, where literally the farm puts it right into the DC packages and goes out the door. And you can imagine that model that, like I say, you're not going to replace your existing supply chain, but boy, you can de-risk that and take the environmental equation out of that, at least for a certain percentage of that supply chain and for the products that you never want to run out of. There's a reason why produce is the first department you walk into in most grocery stores, right? I mean, it's where a lot of the money is made. So you can de-risk that supply chain. I do think that that dynamic on how does the, the existing retail sector engage with the vertical farming, not just as a, a you know, supplier, but a deeper relationship. I think that could be a huge possible upside. Yeah, and I see a real big uh, zero waste opportunity in vertical farming too. I don't know if the industry is talking much about that yet, but I, I think I could see where a vertical farm could figure out a way where there's absolutely no you know plastic or cardboard used to get it to the consumer, which uh, is one of those problems in agriculture we don't like to talk about too much. No, I agree. And I do think on the whole sustainability equation, this is another one I always, my recommendation is be honest. You know, when you talk about all the different elements, whether it be waste and food waste too, of course, when you're producing it closer to where it's consumed, when you have a shorter supply chain, that helps you on, on farm waste, but also on consumer and retail waste. Water is reduced. Land use, you can't really talk about because the, the acres just aren't there. It's not going to have a significant impact on total agricultural land use. Energy, let's be honest, it's a challenge. You're not using you know, the greatest energy source in the solar system. Right? You're not using the sun unless you use solar power. So let's be honest with people and let's do the real, you know, the kind of life cycle analyses on where are the benefits, but also where are the challenges. And let's work to figure out how can we reduce the impacts from sustainability perspective? But yeah, I think zero waste. I think uh, also food waste is another opportunity that, that could really play well. But the energy piece, we got to hit head on. And we got to be honest with people that this isn't a panacea. Nothing is, right? But let's really talk about the energy equation. You know, like I said earlier, how can genetics help? 
on that, but how can other technologies help us on that too? But have a real conversation with people, Tim, and that's what I try to do when it comes to sustainability. Let, let's really measure it. Let's talk about it, both good and bad. There's advantages to many different production systems, but we need honest appraisals and honest conversations about the sustainability equation. Uh, well, AgFunder recently ran an article that talked about vertical farming and actually novel farming systems in general heading for like a trough of disillusionment. I think it was after AeroFarm SPAC sort of fell through, kind of the investor hype maybe peaking as was sort of the, the thesis of the article. And now the author was not bearish on the sector long term, still bullish long term, but thinking that might be some dark times ahead for vertical farming. I'm curious to get kind of your take on that and what keeps you obviously optimistic about uh, this stuff going forward. And you use the term that I, I use a lot, and that, that's hype. I've been going to these vertical farming meetings for five, six years now. You know, when you come in with years in agriculture, it's like, just stop with the BS, right? I mean, stop with the hype. Because, you know, I was at a vertical farm conference. I was on a panel in the morning, in the afternoon panel. One of the questions was, what crops do you foresee might be possible for indoor? And as soon as the words corn and soybean came out of the person's mouth, I'm going, no, no. I see, <laughs> I see your face. That, that was my opinion. My reaction to it, everybody was in agriculture is just going, it's like, no, you got a great story, but the hype is just over the top. It's just over the top. And so I think part of it is just the reality. Does this have a place? Absolutely. Is it going to replace all the oatmeal diggers? Heck no. And certainly it's not going to be for every crop. You know, for these crops that are much more consumer oriented, it's just like it's a reason why a lot of veggie and fruit production is going indoors anyway. It's because you want to use that environment, you know, to protect the crop to provide the higher quality produce year round, et cetera. Those are the opportunities. So let's get rid of that hype. So I think in any of these, you know, we've all seen the curves. It's true. There's no question you get to this phase of the track, a heck of a lot of investment and the hype well exceeds the reality. And then all of a sudden people say, oh, wow. But then they also let it go. Actually, that's not a bad reality either. It's going to be, you know, Barclays, you know, the number of $50 billion market opportunity. That's not a bad market opportunity, you know. Produce is multi-trillion dollars, right? So or fresh, you know, fresh foods is anyway. But so it, you know, this is going to be a significant player. It's definitely going to help many crops, especially the higher uh, consumer kind of oriented crops. Um, it's going to help supply chains. It's going to be a player in there. But I think it's kind of unavoidable where you have this rush of money. You know, the hype exceeds the reality, and then you, know, you have the disillusionment. But then you come back out and say, actually, there's some real good reasons to do vertical, hyper local, reduced inputs. You know, some sustainability advantages and disadvantages. And also, Tim, what I try to do at these meetings is, let's be honest too. Don't make all this, you know, that every, this is the perfect solution because there ain't no perfect solution. You know, let, let's talk realistically about where do those costs come from. Let's talk about the energy equation. Let's talk about what are the challenges of really growing the crop and have real conversations while still talking about the advantages of your crop. And let's go there. The other thing that kind of drives me crazy at some of these meetings is this notion that you have to disparage other forms of agriculture to build your, my mom always said, don't raise yourself by pushing other people down. I try to live my life that way. You can talk about your advantages without, you know, saying, oh, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Because it's not. People are doing an amazing job, especially in the last couple of years of COVID, getting fresh produce, making it accessible, trying to make it affordable for people. You don't need to do that. Let's talk about the advantages of the technology without dissing, you know, all the other great forms of agriculture. It's all, as you know, agriculture is a very tight <laughs> community. And so let's support each other and let's talk about the advantages without having to go there and, you know, disparage other forms. Sorry, I'll get, I'll get off my soapbox now. I apologize. No, that was great. Uh, and I, I really appreciate that level head approach. I've had similar reactions to, you know, things like plant-based proteins. It's like, look, this could carve out a very, very large industry without even really being noticed by traditional protein industries. You know what I mean? Like there's that much room there 
for where the industry is today and where it will exist in the future. And similar here. I, I, I like that. A very well-reasoned sort of approach. You know, the concept of venture-backed farms is just kind of weird to me still. You know, just venture-backed farming. Do you think we will see more of a distributed industry of vertical farming in the future where it's not concentrated in so many hands? And if so, you know, how many vertical farms are we talking about today? And how many differently owned farms do you see kind of in the future? Or will this remain sort of a consolidated type industry? No, I think it will evolve. And I think you're right. And partly is is that the way you want to use venture capital? I mean, versus you know, debt financing and things like that for capital. Uh, there's other ways to do it as the industry matures. But I, I do think you're already seeing some things. You know, right? When you look at some of the big players who are produce players who are now looking at either collaborations or, or looking at how do they get into greenhouse glasshouse production or into uh, vertical farms, et cetera. And these are produce players coming in from that direction versus tech players coming in from the other direction. But I think that's a positive, frankly. I think it's 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 going to help the industry mature because these folks know how to brand and they're looking at this as a great technology to allow them to expand their brands that are already existing in the marketplace. So I think that's a good thing. But I know you're hitting it really uh, interesting just coming out of Indoor AgCon a couple of weeks ago, talking to some of the investors there. There is a lot of sentiment around that is, you know, this industry will mature, the way capital is used will mature. And I think the players who are involved will mature. And, and I think it's just, you got the first, you know, explosion of all this money coming in, everybody building farms. And then it's like, okay, okay, let's think of this as a really key part of the future of produce, but it is part of a much bigger sector uh, rather than this kind of island over here that's called vertical farming. And I know there are some vertical farms that have partnered with, you know, uh, companies that have their own proprietary genetics. Driscoll's and Plenty being obviously the the most well-known one. Are you seeing that a lot where the vertical farm has one way they want to differentiate themselves is being the only one to have their own genetics or are most, you know, pretty interested in having some help when it comes to the genetics part? It's a mix. It's a mix. And I think for some, they look at it as, you know, they're going to build their own capabilities and just make a deal here, a deal there to get the crops they need. I think for others, they're looking for a deep relationship with seed company providers, whether it be the big seed companies who have a, an effort in vertical or whether it be companies like Unfold that are 100% dedicated for it. And then the third one is people are, are actually starting up their own breeding programs within the vertical farming. You know, I think there's examples there as well. So I think you're going to see all three. You're going to see the big seed companies who are dedicating part of their R&D toward vertical farming. You're going to see dedicated seed companies like Unfold. And then you're going to see some vertical farms that say, hey, why can't we do this ourselves? But then the challenge they have is where's the germplasm come from? I mean, I got to admit, I mean, I'm biased. I love our position, frankly, because the way this deal was structured is we started with $30 million, a great place to start for a startup. But we also started with a license to the Bayer Genetics for five crops, lettuce, spinach, tomato, pepper, cucumber. So as a startup to have five of our key crops having even Bayer's Competitors would say world-class germplasm. I mean, they're, they're, they're a very good seed company. Bayer retains the rights for open field greenhouse glasshouse. We have the rights for vertical. But I like our position because we have 100% focus on vertical, but we have the advantage of having the germplasm from a world-class germplasm provider to take advantage of a vertical farm. Yeah. And, and one thing I've noticed just from the outside looking in is the vertical farming companies, you know, in an effort for fundraising or whatever the case may be, are trying to differentiate themselves to show how they are different. And so if you're trying to develop genetics for them and they are indeed different, that to me would would be a challenge, right? Like it, it would be helpful for you to develop genetics that are best suited for one standardized system. So how do you manage that? Yeah, that's a great question because because you actually if you look at other markets, there is more standardization. You know, every grower has 
as nuanced as they all do things that, that you know, they're really proud of. And it's true. But if you go into a, you know glass houses in the Netherlands, yeah, there's differences, but there's some core commonalities that you're breeding for, right? But I do think in, you've hit it because you're going into this market that's very venture capital driven. They're all trying to say, here's our secret sauce. Here's why we're different. Here's why we should be generating the interest and the financial uh, backing because we have the system that's going to work, right? But when we boil it down, though, as to what they're controlling, they are essentially controlling the same environmental parameters. And that's temperature, humidity, light, et cetera. Now, they have different ways to do it, and they have different models on how to do it. And they certainly use different growing conditions. But if we start with that basic premise is, look, if we understand how our genetics perform under this temperature, this humidity, this lighting, and then what the variance is that you allowed in that in order for them to still be grown, then that's a good thing. The cool part is, and we've really tried to go down this route of having deeper relationships with customers. If we can start sharing data, we just announced a program called Innovation Partner Program, which is really about, it's not just sort of the transactional relationship here, try some seeds and buy it. It's let's talk about how do we actually develop the kind of genetics that will help you as, as a producer, but also build a data set that helps us all understand what are the advantages of this germplasm? What are the variances we can use within the temperature humidity, et cetera? How do we develop the next generation of products together that really makes sense? So yeah, there is a challenge because the industry hasn't developed to a point where there's, uh, you know, everybody's systems look a lot alike. But again, you boil it down to the basic units, they're all controlling the same environmental parameters. But secondly, I think these kinds of opportunities to really understand how genetics can help vertical farms be successful in these kinds of programs where we're collaborating together, I think that's going to be the ticket to grow the whole sector. Yeah. So I think this hits on something that from my perception is a headwind for vertical farming, which is kind of everybody's trying to stake their claim rather than collaborate. And it's cool to see companies like yours emerge and become you know, a support uh, for maybe further collaboration. But do you see that show up where it's kind of like if the industry was more collaborative, maybe you know, progress would be made a little quicker. Yeah, and I, I do think it's sort of where I'd say the industry is right now. And and you really hit it on earlier when you talked about it. A lot of it comes down to how they think about their funding, right? Because they all went out, they, they had some great fundraise, a couple billion dollars has flowed into this. So they've made some great gains on, on getting capital to actually make their farms. But I do think as the industry matures, you're going to see more of this. And it, it's going to start, I think, and it's a little easier for us, frankly, because we're a solutions provider. And the same thing with people who are providing robotics and lighting. You get combinations of those kinds of technology providers together. That's where you can see, I think, early gains on the spirit and the power of collaboration. And I think you can get the growers in there. You always have to have the grower in there. You always have to have the producer in those kinds of collaborations because that's where the final ground truth thing is. You know, It's great to have this cool technology, but in the end, does it actually work in someone's farm? But you're seeing enough of these happening now, either broader consortiums that are forming or individual programs that are forming. But it's going to be a combination of the solutions provider, whether it be us with seeds and digital or whether it be you know, the lighting, the robotics, et cetera. But then the producers being part of those same kinds of collaborative efforts. That's really going to drive the huge progress that, that the sector needs. Hmm. Very cool. And so with this partnership program, you know, you're going to kind of keep iterating along with your customers to try to get that dialed in. Absolutely. And like I say, the cool part is on the, on the, for the leapies, a lot of it is going to be testing and trialing of existing materials to see what works. So kind of a biphasic approach. It's helping them find products that they can grow short term, but also it's helping build that database to say, okay, 
we know this one works, but let's take those parental lines. Let's take those pedigrees. Let's start breeding with those to get even better varieties for them on the leafy side. And then I think for the tomatoes, the peppers, et cetera, there's going to be more real collaborations on how do we develop a crop that really fits a vertical farming mode uh, to actually drive it. So a little longer term on those crops. On the leafies, we're already having sales, knock on wood. I mean, for you know, be a year plus in, have a little bit of revenue. Not huge, Tim. Don't hold us to huge numbers, but it is nice to have some sales, right? To know that people are recognizing things. And I think that's one of the advantages, again, of having the relationship with Bayer where we're taking that, uh, that seed, trialing, testing, and finding some things that actually work on a vertical farm. Very cool. And so vertical farming, to my knowledge so far, the, those tomatoes and those cucumbers we're still kind of figuring out how to make those work in the vertical systems. And is that mostly because of the the harvest situation, because the harvest is automated with leafy greens, or is it more having to do with the, the horticulture part of it too? I think part of it is is just basic architecture. I mean, you think you've been in greenhouse, you've been in glasshouse, you look at that architecture, right? They do an incredible job, but those vines, you know, these are six, seven meter glasshouses, right? And, and those vines are, you know, they're looking nine, 10 month production. So they're looking for long production they have gravitated towards smaller, smaller tomato types because that's where the, the value proposition is for many consumers. Snacking is huge now. But that's not what you think about a vertical farm. It doesn't really take advantage. So there are a couple of farms who are growing vine crops in a vertical, which is, you know, fully indoors, fully artificial light. But I don't think that's the final solution, frankly. I, I think for those crops, we need to think about what are the attributes we need from it. And to me, it's it's the you want the great taste that comes out of a glass house, but you want it in an architecture. It actually looks a lot more amenable to the way they grow the rest of their crops. So a smaller type, something that's amenable for automated harvesting, take advantage of all the capabilities they're already employing in leafies, but then apply it to fruiting crops. And, and you know, we're, we're going full bore trying to figure out what is that combination. And you can go either direction, right? Do you, do you take great tasting and put it in an architecture or you take smaller tomato types and build the taste into it. <laughs> and that's what we're working through is, is what is the genetic solution? But in the end, I think it's going to be that combination of the great taste you get out of a glasshouse, but then an architecture that's much more amenable toward vertical farm production because it fits into the kinds of production systems. Because it's kind of a misnomer to call vertical because most of the operations, as you reckon, they're stacked horizontal, right? They're not really, you know, some are vertical plate, but most are stacked horizontal. And they use a massive amounts of robotic and automation. And so you know, I think that combination of, of crop architecture, uh, growth habits that fit into the vertical farm structure, but then have the kind of sensory attributes that already come out of greenhouse glasshouse. I think that's going to be the big winner in this thing. And when you talk about architecture, you're talking about the, the leaf architecture. So as the plant sort of grows, how how the leaves are positioned? Well, and in tomatoes, it's not just that. It's also, you know, how quickly do they produce the fruit? How, you know, how many clusters does it produce? The actual size of the plant, you know, what's the distance between the nodes? How many tomatoes can you get off of it? Because, you know, the glass house, like I say, they have eight, nine month production cycles, even longer sometimes. So they're looking to really extend that and have constant production for over a long period of time. I think for most vertical, ideally, if they had a crop, you put in, you grow it, you harvest, and then you harvest again, you harvest again. And then you're intercropping, which means you're bringing in the next row, planting, et cetera, et cetera. I think that actually might fit the model of a vertical farm better than the way you think about those long, tall vines that the most glasshouse growers go. So when I think about architecture, some of it is the actual leaves and, and the structure of how the, how, the, how the fruit is on there because you, want, you need that for the harvesting. But I also think it's more actual size and dimensions and how big does that plant get and how rapidly can it produce cycles of crop. If we look kind of at how a consumer views vertical farming, you know, does a vertical farming industry need to tell 
that story more to consumers to differentiate in terms of buying decisions? Or is this more just like, you know, it'll be the right growing system in certain contexts and it won't in others. And it doesn't really matter to the consumer whether it's vertically grown or not. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's something that the sector actually talks a lot about is do you need to brand it specifically if this was indoor grown? One of the headwinds you have in that is it doesn't necessarily fit the consumer perception that actually we need to go backwards. We need to have this romantic vision. Let's grow tomatoes like we used to because they used to taste great you know, versus let's make it high tech as we can. Let's think about how does technology innovation provide you the consumer experience you want. But I do think vertical is kind of a unique space because people think it's cool. My daughter's now in agriculture, but when I took this job, she goes, Dad, you're finally cool. You're in vertical farming. <laughs> hey, that's a huge compliment from a daughter. It counts for your daughter, exactly. No, but I do think there is an element to this that kind of breaks that barrier of, like I say, this romantic vision of it to go back 30, 40 years the way we used to grow everything. And But I, I think one of the things we have to do a better job of, frankly, is telling the story. It doesn't matter whether it's organic. Well, if you don't have great varieties that have lots of disease resistance in it, organic, it doesn't work. <laughs> local, if you don't have varieties that actually grow under pretty diverse conditions, local doesn't work. You know, I think there's a lot of things that if you bake it down to the core of what consumers are looking for, fresh, good tasting, affordable, accessible, technology innovation can enable that. So I think part of that, that the story is, is really about what is it you're really looking for in your food experience? And then how can technology innovation, specifically vertical farming, help you have the kind of food you want to eat. And I do think the vertical gives you a great opportunity to use the kind of consumer experience because a lot of it is e-commerce platforms, et cetera, to tell that story. And I know the whole produce industry is looking at this, but I do think vertical can help tell the story of where, where your food actually comes from. And, and I think it's a good story to tell. But the whole question around, does it need a separate brand? I don't know. Or do you just talk about, here it is, it's local, it's fresh. It's, you know, you have longer shelf life because you're not shipping it as far. Is that the story to tell? And, and the Technology, yeah, you want to be honest where it came from, but do you lead with that or do you lead with here's the inherent qualities of that? If this is what you're looking for in produce, actually, here's a way to get it. Well, I'm going to leave you with that thought-provoking conversation and feel free to let me know what you think about that. I'm on Twitter at Tim Hamrich, or you can always email me, Tim at aggrad.com. Thank you so much to John Purcell for today's fascinating episode. I know for me, this conversation, as well as a few others, have really opened my eyes to some of the opportunities here. If you could just look past the headlines about, you know, vertical farming being the only way to grow food in the future, some other such nonsense. I really do think that there is value being created here beyond the hype. And uh, there are some interesting opportunities that I think will emerge in sort of a post-hype era for vertical farming. You can learn more about the work John is doing over at unfold.ag. And if you're new to the Future of Agriculture podcast, and maybe you listened last week and it was more of a regenerative focus, and this week it's more of a vertical farming focus, that's because I don't think there is one solution for the future of agriculture. In fact, this would be a pretty short and boring podcast if there was only one answer to what agriculture will look like in the future. I don't see the value in getting dogmatic of saying it'll only be this, that, or the other. I don't think it will be just a technology that will save us all on its own. It's going to take people. It's going to take policy. It's going to take change. But I do think all of these solutions have value and have a place in certain contexts in our food system. Okay, well, I don't know where that came from. That's just a short little soapbox that I'll leave you with here today. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.